The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, good morning. Oh, and still, are we still asleep today? Good morning. There we go. Okay. Okay. Well, welcome to church. Good to have you here this morning. I don't know about you and your family, but for my wife and I and our family, one of the things that we've always loved to do is we love to travel. And we've been blessed to travel around to the United States, visit a lot of really beautiful areas. And my wife and I have been able a few different times to actually travel internationally as well. And I really enjoy international travel, but I don't know about you, but there's this thing when you travel internationally, it's fun, but you kind of, are, you always have this sense of like, there's reminders constantly that you don't actually live there, right? There's just like little uncomfortable things. Like you go to the ATM to take out money and suddenly you're like, oh, now I have to do math. Like, am I taking out $20 or $2,000 right now? I have no idea because I can't do conversions in my head, but I can get to take something out, right? Or if you've ever traveled to a place where they drive on the wrong, I mean the left side of the road. (laughs) And I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we visited New Zealand for a few weeks. And so after about 24 to 30 hours of travel, I get in a rental car and I have to drive on the wrong side of the road. I'm like, this is like the worst time ever to have to be trying this out. But, you know, whatever, here we are, let's go. And you're like driving out and you're like the whole time, you're like, am am I gonna fly right into a car coming at me? Like even after two weeks, you still like, you had gotten it down. You're still like trying to figure out which way to look when you cross traffic because you don't want to like blindside you. And but like normal things like driving here, you don't even think about, right? You just get in your car and drive, but it's like, constant on edge till you finally get home. And then it's like, ah, I can drive. And I'm worried about hitting oncoming traffic, like little things like that. I think that description of enjoying it, but kind of always having the slightly uneasy feeling of not belonging describes how a Christian should feel living in the world in which we live. That this is where we live and God has placed us here, but it's not, it's not home. Our our permanent residence is somewhere else, and we're reminded of that all along. And Peter has used this term throughout the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to see again this morning, to describe the Christian experience as one of being sojourners or exiles, that this is the place that we are, but our true belonging, our true home is somewhere else. And this morning, if you have your Bibles, would you open them up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, starting at verse 11. Um, Here in verse 11, as we dive in this morning, the the book starts to take a shift. Really, the first chapter and a half of the book of 1 Peter, as we've been walking through it this summer, is kind of the theological foundation of the book. So Peter, if you've been joining with us, Peter's talked about this new birth that you have in Jesus and the hope that you have regardless of the circumstances because of that. He talked about this relationships amongst the church of love for each other, this new community as we looked at last week that now you are a part of the church and what that means to be part of this communal people of God living in this world. And in chapter two, he shifts And these first two verses really are kind of like a summary statement of what he's going to then explain for the next two chapters. And his focus goes on, this is who you are in God. This is what Jesus has done for you. To now specifically, this is what it looks like to live in a world that doesn't believe in God. If you've been saved by Jesus, if you've been set apart in this community, this is now how it 
looks. And so he sets it up with, this, with these two verses in chapter two, verse 11. It says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The focus here is clearly on how do we live in this world as sojourners and exiles. So how do we live? If you could, if my kind of summary of these two verses, which really sets up the next two chapters is this, is that what, what Peter is calling us to do with the character of our lives for Christians should be that we do good no matter what for the glory of God. The Christians are to be known for the goodness of our lives regardless of the circumstances and the places in which we find ourselves, which will and can include suffering and hardship for the glory of God. Now notice that this goodness is tied to glorifying God in the day of visitation. What he means by that is that Christians shouldn't just walk around and then kind of like snot our noses at people. They look, we're better than the rest of you. But no, the goodness of our lives actually allows us an, an invitation to speak God's love and truth into other people and their eternal destiny is changed because of the way you lived your life and you've had the opportunity to speak to them. Now, I hate sometimes the tiny little words. I wish it was different. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles so honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he doesn't say if, he doesn't say if perchance they do. What Peter is saying is that living in a world that doesn't honor God, if you're rightly doing it as a Christian, you will stand out and you will often be accused and mocked and have suffering come as a result of how you live. He's saying when you are accused, when you stand out, when your life looks so different that it's confusing to people around you, this is how you live. And so what he's going to do over the next several chapters is now take this truth, all right? We're, we're to live and our lives are to be characterized by goodness that we can give glory to God and share his love with others. That's kind of the overarching theme. Now he's gonna go in and apply it in different and specific life situations in which the believer finds themselves. The first one that he's going to talk about, which we're going to look at this morning, is he starts by applying it in a way that you and I probably wouldn't pick as the first one, but for whatever reason, Peter does, and that is our relationship with government and politics. Some of you are like, okay, I'm gonna leave now. Right, outside, I see you back there too, outside. You don't leave, don't leave, all right? So some of you are like, oh no, here we go. What, what, what is he going to say? Now, we're gonna talk about what the Bible says our relationship should be in this minority world, in an unbelieving world, how we represent God here. Kind of a precursor before we jump in. Just a reminder, the Bible was not written to Americans about America, if you go to some churches, you wouldn't necessarily ever think that. Like, this is not God's revelation to us in this time and in this age. But this is the truthless, the, the truthless, take that back, timeless truth. There we go. Now, words matter, right? This is the timeless truth of God's word. 
And yes, it was not written to us in this time. It was written to people in a specific context, but there are truths in it that still govern us and should regulate our lives as it thinks to how, as Christians, we relate to the authorities, specifically here, the political and government authorities that God has placed over us. My goal here is to challenge you, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you've fallen, if you're left, middle, or right. I think God's word naturally should rightfully seen and read challenge us regardless of where we fall on the spectrum. So let's dive in. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We're gonna look at three responsibilities of every Christian this morning. And the first one in these two verses is to practice submission. The first responsibility of every Christian in relationship to government is to practice submission. Now, this phrase, be subject, this is the first instance that he's going to use this word about five or six times in the next two chapters, talking about our relationships to different authorities that God has placed in our lives. And the primary posture of the Christian's life towards these governing authorities is one of submission. He spells it out first by saying, look, whether it's to the emperor as supreme in their context, this would have been Rome. They lived under Roman rule. So there was to under Roman rule as the supreme authority over that or to the governors. Each area had a localized governor that they were given or even the designated authority that he's placed over. Our lives are to submit to these authorities. Notice he highlights real quickly here in verse 14, what is the the purpose of government rightfully done is to do evil, excuse me, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so when government works this way, the general posture of our lives should be one of subjection, of submission to these authorities over our lives. Is this a command? Is what Peter is saying here, is what God's word is saying, is this a command for us to do anything always that the government ever tells us to do? The answer is no. He's not saying to obey every authority placed over you, but the regular posture of our hearts is submission. So when should Christians not submit? When should we disobey government? These are to be the exceptions, not the norm. Right, but the exceptions, what are the exceptions? The Bible speaks of two kind of exceptions to this. The first exception is that when Christians are commanded to do something that God forbids. If Christians are commanded to do something that God clearly forbids, we should not subject, we should not submit ourselves to government, but we should live differently. Two examples, in Exodus chapter one, under Pharaoh, they are instructed that every Hebrew child that is born is to be killed. God does not approve of killing. And so Moses' mom breaks the law by saving her child and, and saving him and putting him into the river where eventually he is found by Pharaoh, right? She goes against the law, but that was the right thing to do because God clearly forbids and commands against murder. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you grew up on VeggieTales, those are the actual names, not the ones that they tell you in the, in the movie, all right? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that you must bow down and worship this image. They say, God forbids that I worship anything other than him. And so they refuse to bow down and worship, right? So when Christians are commanded to do something, God forbids. We should not do it. 
The second instance is that when we are forbidden to do something God commands. If Christians are forbidden to do something that God commands of us. In the same book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter six, the prophet Daniel, this law is passed that you cannot pray to anything else other than the king, that you cannot pray to God. What does Daniel do? He's saying, well, you cannot forbid me to do something that God commands. And so I will not pray to this God. I will keep praying to mine. And it's because of that that Daniel is arrested and thrown into this den of lions. In Acts chapter five, the apostles, including Peter himself, the same author who writes this book, the apostle, are commanded by the leaders and officials to not preach the gospel, that you have to stop. You're forbidden to preach, to which Peter has this line, which I love in Acts 5, 29. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Like where God speaks clearly and you say, no, we have to go with God. Now, these are, again, these are to be the exceptions, not the norm. The normative behavior of our lives as Christians is to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. Notice why we do it. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We do it not because of some right that they have over us or right that they have over our lives. We submit because of the right that God has on our lives as Christians. We recognize that he is our Lord. He is the one whom we ultimately serve. And we submit not because they are worthy of it or because that's what we think we should do. We submit because that's what God tells us to do. And we're actually, by submitting to human authorities, including government authorities, as a Christian, you are actually honoring and obeying God by doing so. Submission to government is actually service to God. Submission to government is actually service to God because you are doing it as a Christian for the Lord's sake. Now, this starts to help us transform all of life as seeing it come under this this authority of God. Worship is an all-encompassing surrender of our lives to him. And what, what, what this means is that unless something is clearly commanded that God forbids or forbidden to do something God commands, which is by far the exception, our lives should fall into submission to it. This means that if you're a Christian, out of service to God, you pay your taxes. Romans 13 specifically spells that out, that you do this as an act of worship to God, that you submit yourself to the government. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain things, rules, restrictions, regulations that I don't entirely agree with. I live in a subdivision where I'm convinced if I was in charge of the HOA, things would be a lot better. All right? In the subdivision that I live in, I do not know why. I have no idea. It makes zero sense. But where we live, you are not allowed to park your car on the street overnight. Why? Makes zero sense. Right? There is plenty of parking. It's not a through street. It literally, you can't go anywhere. There's never been an issue that I'm at, but it's like, we're known as like, oh, you live in that subdivision that you can't park on. And so everyone has to park like, if not in the driveway, way out in the main street. That's why like there's suddenly all these random cars parked on the main road right by our house. And it's like, why? That makes no sense. Now I could, what if I was like, you know what? That's stupid. I'm going to park on the street. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to break the rules. That's, that's a stupid rule. That doesn't matter. My, my ideas are better than your made-up HOA rules. And then I invite them to church. 
And they're like, yeah, but, but you, you can't even park where you're told to park. See, by being subject for God's sake to the human rulers over us, we're actually doing service to God. And when we view our lives as those of being doing good deeds, we start to see all of these things as falling under the authority of God. And so a regular practice of our life as a Christian is to submit to the authority that God's placed over you, the governing authorities. Why? Because that's what God calls us to do. Our allegiance is first and foremost and always to him, and he calls on us to submit to these institutions that he's placed over us. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. The second responsibility of every Christian is to persist in goodness. To persist in goodness. That regardless of the government around you, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the decisions, the rulers, the authorities that have been placed there, that your lives are to be known as good lives, that your good deeds are being done by and to, excuse me, others. Inside the body of Christ, it's interesting, in the book of 1 Peter, in chapter one, he, he talked a lot about holiness and how holiness was to describe the Christian life, this idea of being set apart, our relationship to sin and to the world, set apart, we're unique to God. When Peter starts to describe the Christian life in relation to the world around us, he uses this term of doing good. The goodness of our lives, which these good deeds are, yes, those which are also holy, they are, they are righteous and they're not sinful, but he's talking here about good things that even those who do not go to church, who do not recognize Jesus, would still say that's a good thing to do. The Christians in our lives are to be known for the goodness of our lives. It's more than just obeying the laws, but actually going above and beyond and being known for the good quality of your life. He says there in verse 16, not to use your freedom as a cover up for evil, but live as servants of God. He's saying, yes, our ultimate allegiance is to God and God has set us free from sin, but that doesn't mean he set us free to live however we want. Christian freedom is being set free from sin to find a freedom to be able to obey God and everything that he's called us to. And beware of thinking that your freedom in Christ exempts you from what God calls you to do. It never, it never does. Christian freedom is not doing what we want, but being free to serve God. So in a hostile world that may look down on and insult Christians, Christians in the face of adversity and hardship should be known for their goodness. And this has always been the case. What Peter was referencing back and definitely pulling from is another time in history where God's people lived in exile. They weren't just seeing themselves as spiritual exiles, but literally were in exile. The people of Israel were taken out of Jerusalem, sent a long ways away and sent to Babylon. And suddenly they found themselves in this non-believing world where God was not honored. And Jeremiah the prophet writes to people in this context and gives them instructions on how they should live their lives. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and, and have their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What Jeremiah is saying is is that where you live, where God has sent you, the goodness of your lives, as you seek the welfare of the place that God has sent you should be so seen and evident that when you go there, you live your life on mission in the place that God has placed you. Notice it would have been radical for these people in Jeremiah's day for God to say the place from exile to where I have sent you. But when you start to see your life, not as just random chance, not as just you happen to be in the place that you are, but when we start to see our lives, not an accident, but where God has sent us, it changes how we think of how we live there. You don't just happen to live in Morgan Hill or Gilroy or San Martin or wherever you live. You don't just happen to live there. God has sent you there for a reason. God sent you there for a purpose. And when you start to see your life as God sending me to a place for a reason and for a purpose, it starts to give us this motivation that, man, maybe there's something that God wants from me in my life because I'm sent to this place in this time for a reason. He says in verse 15 that it's God's will that by doing good, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, some of us are like, I would like to shut up some ignorant people around here. Like, I can get on board with that. Well, by ignorance, he's referring back to chapter one, where he talks about those who do not know God are blind in their ignorance. Ignorance here is a life separated from Jesus. So again, what he's saying is that the goodness of your life is so connected to Jesus that you actually get to speak the truth of God to them and their life is changed for eternity because of the goodness of your life now. Silence here doesn't mean to shut them up, but to show them Jesus. Now, when we live in a world that has accusations in which we find ourselves as Christians as being on the minority side, that the world around us does not think like us. There's a few natural responses that could come to every single one of us. First would be kind of when we think of like, shut them up. It's gonna be like, we're gonna argue to them to tell them how wrong they are, how right we are till we're blue in the face and we've convinced ourselves that we've won. The reality is they just stop talking because we're too big as of a jerk. And like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. So yeah, you can think you won, right? And that's what, that's what some of us, the natural thing when people accuse us, we want to defend ourselves and we will defend ourselves to the death and we will be passionate about it. The other thing, next one that we often do is when we receive things from the world that, that are criticisms or accusations, we just disassociate. We're like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own little bubble. I'm not going to interact with any of my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers. I'm going to keep my head down. Maybe I'll just leave. I'll leave California. I'll go to someplace else that lines up with my life and my value system better. And I'm just gonna disassociate from the world around me and just kind of do my own thing and have no one else know me. The the another response, which is clearly not what God wants, is when someone does bad towards you, you just do evil right back, right? Like that's a natural inclination in every human heart. Like when, when we have wrong done towards us that we wanna do wrong back. And so in the face of those being our natural response, what does Peter call on us to do? He calls on us to live lives of goodness, to live lives of goodness in the face of all this hostility that they would be expecting and that we should be expecting. And I was thinking this week of, of my own life and when I've been challenged to be 
living a life of goodness in the face of a hostile environment. And I immediately thought back to me to what was my very first job that I had in high school. I was, I don't remember, 16, 17 years old. And my very first job was to be an elementary school basketball referee. And I was really looking forward to this. I played basketball growing up, so I really enjoyed the sport. I had coached with little older kids before. So I'm like, hey, this is another opportunity for me. I'm getting a little side money, being paid a little bit to go out. It's really easy, have some fun, teach some kids some basketball. And then I showed it to my first game and I was like, oh shoot, there's parents here. Now I'm sure none of you in here have ever been guilty of this. I'm sure, I'm sure none of us in here ever have or no one that we know has. But back then, some parents treated their fifth grade basketball game like it was the NBA Finals. And the little Johnny was actually the next Steph Curry, right? Or little Susie was on her way to the college scholarship. And then if a referee, if you miss one foul, now you have done some egregious wrong against their child and they're gonna make sure to scream and know about it. And you're like, dude, there's only two rows of bleachers in here. You're like two feet behind me. Also, I'm like 16. Why are you, I'm a kid. Like, why are you yelling at me? And suddenly I found myself realizing like, oh, this isn't an easy environment. Now, besides I think being a good thing to prepare me for ministry and getting yelled at, the other thing was that I, that I kind of determined and said, hey, I maybe can't change every parent's mind about me or about what the referee wants to do. I was like, but you know what? I am here because I actually want to help these kids and I'm here to do that. And so I'm going to make sure they know that. And so when kids grab the ball and they're so excited because they got the ball in the basketball game, what do they do? They start running with it. I'm like, dude, it's not football. So I blow the whistle. Instead of just blowing the whistle, I'm like, Whoop, traveling violation this way. No, what do I do? I go over to them and I blow the whistle. I'm like, hey, you got to dribble the ball. And they're like, oh, okay. And then the next time when they dribble the ball and they just run right out of bounds, rather than just whistle it and point violation, give it, I have to go over. No, you see this line? You have to stay inside. And I tried to get down on their level. I tried to lead the handshake line to give them all high fives and tell them good job. Why? Because I wanted the parents to see from the goodness of just how I was trying to treat their kids that it would win them over. In a hostile world, they'll attack us for what we believe, for what we stand for. We need to be known for the goodness of our lives. And that's often hard to do because we want to be defensive. We want to stand up for what we want. Here's the thing. The goodness of your life doesn't get to depend on who's in the White House. It doesn't depend on who's in the governor's seat in Sacramento. It doesn't change the kind of life that God has called on you to live as a Christian. A lot of people have some issues with the California government. When we were moving here last year, I remember people came to me and they're like, oh, are you aware of the politics here? And I was like, you realize where I come from, four of the last seven governors went to prison, right? Like, you realize, like, that's just historically true, right? Like, yes, I, I, I get it. But rather than see it as like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing in the world, we need to huddle up. It's like, what an opportunity we have in a world that doesn't necessarily stand for Jesus, where our political leaders don't necessarily stand for the beliefs or values that you or I would, what an opportunity we have that the goodness of our lives in the face of that could be known for something different, that we could represent God here as something unique. 
And so the goodness of our lives should be seen regardless of who is in office, regardless of it's the person we wanted or the person that we voted for or not, that our lives should be characterized by goodness. Lastly, verse 17, honor everyone and honor for all people. Love the brotherhood, the relationships within the church community, this unique love that we have. Fear God, our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate loyalty is to him. Lastly, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. The third, the third responsibility of every Christian is to portray honor, to portray honor. Our normative action towards the authorities is submission, right, to be subject to, but our permanent attitude is honor. There's no exceptions here. There's no, there's no well, if, if it's this person you honor, if they believe in this, you don't. See, we love to honor the person in government when it's the person we voted for. Right When it's our candidate, we love to honor them, and then it's not our candidate, and suddenly this gets a little bit harder to do, right? to honor them. So how, how can we honor people even if we disagree with them? How, how are we able to do this? Well, it's getting a larger perspective on why they are there to begin with. Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. See, elections and their results may catch you by surprise. They may catch commentators by surprise. Elections do not catch God by surprise. And the authorities that are in place over us are there because God has placed them there over our lives. And not because necessarily their character, not because of their positions, but because God has placed them there and God has called us to, we as Christians are called to honor the political and governing authorities that God has placed over us. Now, for some of you, you're like, I don't like that. So I'm going to ask a question. Well, yeah, okay, that's all true. I, I get what you're saying. Okay, but, but if Peter were alive today, if Peter lived in the Bay Area in 2022, certainly he'd be like, nope, we're going to write this different, right? Like, certainly this may be applied to them 2,000 years ago, but to us, th this doesn't apply. Honor these people? Are you kidding me? Like, we, we can't do that. Look at what they stand for. Look at what they believe in. All right, let's go back and look at the political leaders that Peter has during his livelihood. When Peter was young, he certainly would have heard of it from his family, Herod the Great went out and killed all the children in an entire village of Bethlehem when he was seeking after Jesus. So he just went out and killed a whole bunch of kids to try and kill Jesus. Later on, about 30 years later, Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist as a prize for a dance at his birthday party. Pontius Pilate, who would have been the governor over Judea, rightfully or willfully handed Jesus over for murder, even though he knew he had done nothing wrong. And then let's get to the one that he specifically addresses here. So Peter is talking, remember, he's addressing this to an audience that's in what now is modern day Turkey under the Roman Empire. And he's specifically there, verse 17, honor the emperor. Who is he talking about? He is talking about the man who's reigning over them at the time, whose name is Nero. Maybe you remember him from some of your ancient world history classes. Nero, if you don't, AD 54, at about 16 or 17 years old, Nero becomes the emperor when his mom has his adopted dad killed. 
His mom poisons his adopted dad so that Nero at 16 or 17 becomes the emperor. Now his mom does this because she wants to kind of put her own person in and kind of use him as a puppet. And she senses now that Nero is pushing back against this. And so his mom tries to put his stepbrother into authority as the emperor. So what does Nero do the next year to his stepbrother? He kills him. In AD 59, as his mom is continuing to try her influence over his life, what does Nero do? He kills his mom. In AD 62, what does he do when he feels like his wife is pushing back against him and his authority? In AD 62, he kills his wife. Later on, he kills another wife. He's known for killing multiple political rivals against him, known for his affairs, and known for his horribly disgusting and vile antics that are purely gross. This is the one to whom Peter is talking. And in AD 62 or 63, a couple years after his mom and possibly the same year that Nero murders his wife, Peter says, honor the emperor. That's who he's talking about. Honor Nero. See, may you may have large disagreements with the people that God has put in authority with, a governor, with a president. You may not like them. You may not respect their character. You may not agree with what they say. But honoring, why does Peter say this? Because honoring an emperor like this would have been a radically countercultural thing. And it is today for us. To honor a political leader or the political leaders that God has put over us that we don't agree with or don't like is actually such a countercultural thing to do. But honoring is what God calls us to do. See, the reality is the way some Christians speak about our governor, the way some Christians speak about our president is not just inappropriate, it's sinful. It's not just inappropriate, but it is sinful because God has called us to honor the authorities, not agree, not to obey, but to honor them. And some of us have sinned and are sinning by the way we talk. We made you do it now. We did it six years ago. We did it 12 years ago. This doesn't depend on who's in office. For a lot of us, we are inappropriate and sinful towards these leaders. See, when we think, maybe you think, yeah, but, but how can I honor someone like that? When we look at where this flows in the book of 1 Peter, Peter's talked about God's great mercy, how all of us are sinners and it's God's grace and mercy in our lives that changes us, this new birth that we've received because of him and not because of what we've done. The reality is our sin puts us in the exact same position as every political leader. The only difference is their lives are a lot more public than yours and mine. See, if every thought of your heart and my heart was put on full display for people to see, none of us, myself included, would be worthy of honor. And so it's not because of some moral standing, some moral quality, because of what they've done that we honor them. We honor them because this is what God calls us to. See, too often when we think of how Christianity and politics come together, we think of only how we should vote. And yes, that, that matters, and we should think, and we should have scripture inform all of our lives, including the candidates we would support and those that we would vote for. But don't neglect the clear teaching of scripture, and regardless of who is in office, regardless of who you supported, the conduct of our lives towards them is to be one of honor. Yes, we serve the King of Kings, 
not a governor or a president. That's where ultimate allegiance lie. But the King of Kings has called us to honor these governing authorities that he's placed over us in the here and in the now. You know, it seems like we're always in this world, right, in a political season. And we're certainly going into one this fall. How will your testimony as a Christian be seen in the midst of politics in this world and in where God has placed us? Will it be another voice of division? Will it be another voice trying to manipulate and get people to do what you think is best? Another voice of disrespect and dishonor towards those whom you may disagree with? See, a lot of us, maybe we live our lives more trying to point people to a candidate rather than Christ. We're so concerned about that that we lose the point that he says, no, 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 you, do, you live your lives with such goodness so that people will see Jesus through you. It's not wrong to support things. It's not wrong to do that by any means. But what is the purpose is that people will see Jesus. And my prayer for us is that we would stand out in this politically divided world. The reality is for some people, including for a lot of Christians, the reason why politics is such a hard thing to talk about is it's the idol that has pushed God to the side in our lives. And for a lot of Christians, that's true as well that it's pushed God off and it said, this is the throne, this is the most important thing. And for a lot of our world, that's their God, is politics is their God. And in the midst of a world like that, may we honor the King of Kings over those who may be in authority over us now. Would we honor him and push back against the rhetoric that is around us? May we stand out in this world of how we treat with honor those even whom we disagree with how we submit our lives to the authorities God's place and the goodness of our lives, regardless of who's in office, whether we supported them or not. God, we live in such a divided world and in such a unique and challenging time, but your word speaks so clearly to us. God, I pray that above all, we would be known for Jesus that the goodness of our lives would give opportunity to speak the truth and the love of Jesus to those around us. God, in a world that sees such divide and disagreements over government and politics, may we rise above as a unique and a different voice, one of honor and respect, and one of submission to the authorities that you've placed over us. God, this is so hard to do because it's so different from the world and so different from even what we would want to do. So I pray that your spirit would help us to do this and that by our witness, we would have opportunities to show and to share the love of Jesus with a world that so desperately needs to know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.